Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Welcome to Easel Studio, your weekly hepatology broadcast news. In this episode, we want to discuss about a new guideline in hepatitis delta. So my name is Thomas Berg. I'm the moderator of this session, hepatologist from the University of Leipzig. And it's great that you are joining this session. You know, this is really the first time that we have a dedicated guideline for hepatitis delta. The years before, it was all covered in the major guideline related to hepatitis B with a small segment also related to Delta. But I think the main reason why EASL commissioned this guideline was that there was a conditional approval of a new treatment for hepatitis Delta with an entry inhibitor, bulivertite. So, but what is really, what are the news? What are the controversial issues in this guideline? This is really what I want to discuss in the following half an hour, together with my distinguished faculty. And it's a great pleasure and privilege to introduce them. So first we have Professor Maurizia Brunetto. She's also a hepatologist and director of the liver unit in University of Pisa. So welcome, Maurizia. And Maritia is not only a, a well-known um, expert in hepatitis B and Delta, but she was really the chair um, of the writing panel and of these first clinical practice guideline in hepatitis Delta. So it's so great to have you with us and that we are able to learn more, some gossip behind <laughs> what was going on when you discussed with the experts um, the different topics related to hepatitis delta. And uh, we also want to, to give the user perspective, it's say, and I couldn't find any better than Professor Oad Etzion from Israel. He's a director of the um, Department of Gastroenterology and Liver Diseases in Soroka University. Uh, University Medical Center Beersheva, and he is a, a great expert also in hepatitis B and Delta, and now involved in many trials, also with new non-line-sense treatment. And I think it would be very interesting to hear from a user perspective what the thoughts are. So, after introducing you, now I think it's time to to start with the discussion. And to open it, perhaps, Maurizia, you can give us insight. What was really the most controversial when discussing the guideline with the experts? Could you give us some? Well, uh, as you anticipated, the, the guideline were commissioned because of the new treatment. And I have to say that the topic of treatment, how to treat the patients, how to monitor the treatment, was, uh, how can I say, quite lively discuss in our uh, panel. And I have to say that also the Delphi panel contribute to this discussion, making even more lively. So these were the topics. <laughs> so how long did it take to get a consensus? Because of, as always in life, you have to find a consensus, you know. Yeah. And uh, how long did it take? Oh, well, we had several meetings, web meeting, and then I think very important was one full day in Frankfurt 
where we stay really all the day discussing and mainly we discuss about treatment and monitoring the treatment. And at this point, uh, we achieve uh, almost an uh, almost consensus. Then we have to work a bit more for almost uh, two months. And we finally were able to write the, our recommendation. And then all the process was, was there. Yeah. So nobody could leave the room before consensus was reached, right? Absolutely. <laughs> this was <laughs> the point. <laughs> yeah. But giving these, let's say, complicated issue with a conditional approval, and we will come later to this point because this is, as you mentioned, really the most important part, perhaps, of the guideline. Oha, do you think it was the right time or is it um, really to commission a guideline? Is it really helpful for our community? Well, actually, I, I I understand that the reason for issuing it at this uh, point in time was the condition of approval, but actually, I believe it should have been issued uh, long ago. I think first and foremost for its uh, declarative, declarative nature. Uh, so to say that HDV is not an uh, esoteric disease, uh, one in which average the average clinician may encounter maybe once or twice during their career, but rather a serious clinical entity this we should be searched for and appropriately managed. Uh, uh, the second reason is that there are changes in the prevalence of HDV in Europe and the US uh, driven by migration waves. And clinicians that are not well-versed in hepatitis D epidemiology and management should be educated about it. And of course, uh, the, the treatment uh, issue that after so many years of anticipation, we, we finally have a targeted uh, therapy for HDV and clinicians need to be informed about the, its efficacy and safety. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And you mentioned also migration. So perhaps to start with you, Maurice, here first. So how does the landscape in terms of prevalence, morbidity, or even mortality, liver transplant, waiting list candidates have changed in, let's say, the, the last 10 years? Is it still the same? Italy was once a high prevalence, well, a relatively high prevalence country for hepatitis delta. So what happened there? It uh, happens that uh, currently the prevalence is around 7 to 9%, according to the different study and also center where you evaluate the prevalence. Of and all uh, HPV-infected uh, patients, right? Uh, yeah. As positive patients. Recently, we had a study in Italy in over 4,000 uh, as positive patients. The prevalence was around uh, 9%. And I have to say that 70% of the patient was tested, so quite a high prevalence of testing. In my center, for instance, in the last 10 years, the prevalence of uh, non-Italian native migrants increased from 30 to 60% of anti-HDV positive patients. Their many um, median age is uh, 35 years. So we have uh, uh, migrants, young migrants with uh, HDV infection, and at least in my center, 70% of them have cirrhosis. So young patient with a very severe liver disease. Um, of course, this may be due to a sort of, uh, we are a tertiary center, so we are referring the most severe cases. Nevertheless, cirrhosis is a major problem in HDV patients, even in young patients. So clinicians should be aware of this. The disease may progress to liver decompensation in early age, and this may require transplant before the age of 40 or the age of 50. Yeah, no, thank you very much. And how's the situation in Israel? 
So in Israel, the, the prevalence uh, is around 6.5%. Uh, Again, this is anti-HDV. Uh, we are not quite, uh, we don't quite have the data about HDV uh, RNA positivity that is accurate enough uh, because we've only started testing uh, uh, recently with quantitative tests. Um, and, and most of these patients come from, uh, immigrated from uh, countries like the former USSR, uh, Eastern Europe and Ethiopia. Uh, so we see pockets of, of higher prevalence among these populations. Uh, and of course, uh, these again are, like Maritza said, these are younger patients, uh, but as they get older and the disease progresses, we see more complications. Yeah. So you do not see any decline in, let's say, the severity, morbidity and mortality of the disease no, no. Listing for transplant. No, that's very interesting. So how does the, the guideline deal with this um, deals with this issue? Um, there are data out that perhaps up to, well, 50% of all infected patients, HBS antigen positive patients being also anti-Delta positive, have not been detected yet. And there's a big debate about this, you know, reflex testing that for every patient with HBS antigen positivity, there should be immediate an anti-Delta and if positive, an RNA test, a varemia test. So what is the recommendation from the guideline? Is there a clear positioning towards this direction, Maritza? The indication, the recommendation was to, of course, to screen for anti-HDV all as positive individuals. And this mainly to also to increase the awareness in clinician to test for anti-HDV. And of course, once you have the anti-HDV positivity, you need to test for HDV RNA because only at this point you can uh, identify the patients with infection, possibly with disease. Reflex yeah. And was there a really the recommendation that countries should go, the community should go really for this reflex testing approach? The is point is that probably for reflex testing, and we have to consider reflex testing as testing for anti-HDV all as positive serum sample, must be evaluated in terms of cost effectiveness, because probably it's not the same in all the country. It depends on the prevalence of HBV and HDV. For instance, where you have a low endemicity of HDV, but a high endemicity of HBV, the reflex testing could not be cost effective. Nevertheless, we have data from Spain where having reflex testing done in the in the general lab increased fivefold the identification of anti-HDV patients. So indeed, uh, this can be also a policy that can be developed in the different area in the different country according to the epidemiology of HDV and HBV. But first of all, clinicians need to be aware of the fact That's that the they point. have test for anti-HDV all HDSG positive uh, patient. This, I think, is the major point. Yeah, Marita, this is a bit of my concern. You know, you also mentioned that it's a different population with the migrants and perhaps also the doctors taking care of these patients are less aware about hepatitis B and Delta. So how do you deal with this situation in, in Israel? What? Well, well, actually, uh, first, I think that there's a strong uh, linkage between early detection and prevention of disease. Uh, once you identify more patients, you can implement measures to prevent the spread of disease, and this is why it's so important to detect, uh, uh, you know, try to detect every single patient that is infected. 
And uh, in, in my center, uh, we actually adopted a policy of reflect testing uh, for over the last uh, 10 years or so. This is mainly due to the fact that we don't really rely on risk-based screening. I, I don't think we can rely on risk-based screening in a disease that is relatively rare. Uh, and, and such an approach of risk-based screening in a rare disease is bound to, to miss many patients, that the risk for disease has not been identified or that they carry the disease despite not meeting criteria for risk-based uh, screening. Again, many of the primary care physicians are not aware of the risk factors for, for HDV, and, and uh, even uh, gastroenterologists and some uh, pathologists that are not well-versed in Delta management uh, will miss it. That's why it's so important. Uh, this recommendation is very important. Yeah, no, that's, that's a fair point. And I think there are recent calculations showing that if only go for the newly diagnosed hepatitis B infected patient, then the costs are not really enormous, at least for the more wealthy countries. But I think we should come more to what most people really interest is how to decide about treatment indication, how to best treat the patient. In this respect, is there any specific you have to do before considering treatment? This means in terms of fibrosis testing or genotypes, or does it affect the differential way of treatment? What is really recommended here from the guideline, Maurizio? From the guidelines, uh, the recommendation is, of course, to have a, a workup of liver disease. We need to uh, evaluate the disease activity and the stage of liver disease because, uh, of course, it's important fibrosis uh, to stage the disease. And here we have some problem because the non-invasive tests are not well standardized for HDV. But the other major point is that the disease activity, the extent of ALT elevation is very important because chronic hepatitis B may rapidly progress from chronic hepatitis to cirrhosis. So having a full evaluation with transaminases and of course the liver function test and ultrasound because uh, having, for instance, plenomegaly may indeed suggest that the patient have a, a quite advanced liver disease, even if, for instance, liver stiffness is not very high. Yeah. And, and does it have any practical consequences? So do we change our workup for the patient if we know the level of fibrosis? Is there any difference I think that in the setting of chronic hepatitis D, not so consistently as in other settings, for instance, hepatitis C, because indeed in the case of chronic hepatitis D, the severity and the, how fast the disease may progress is uh, prevalent on the stage uh, the patient have at the moment we evaluate uh, in the, the clinical setting. Thus, I think, of course, knowing liver stiffness, for instance, is important and is something that we do in clinical practice. But as I was anticipating, we don't have so strong validation in terms of threshold. Nevertheless, in my opinion, having high transaminases is more relevant to decide that we have to treat the patients because indeed the disease activity is important, mainly in a young patients. Okay, so it's clear from the guideline you do recommend non-invasive testing, ultrasound, so fibrosis staging, ALT, and so on. So what about genotype? Is it recommended to do genotyping? No, currently, because we have 
data suggesting that the different genotype may associate with the difference in disease severity and also response to treatment. But these data are preliminary and in are they really so preliminary? Or what, what do you think? <laughs> Well, regarding what the genotype or in general the, the genotype you know it, it it comes a bit to the question you know whether they're i think you can compare it a bit with hep c in the beginning with hep c there was a lot about fibrosis dating and so on and only if you have advanced fibrosis you go for treatment and nowadays it's it's really gone if you have a chronic infection go for treatment so is it a similar situation with hepatitis delta or in their data out that well, treatment response might be a bit different, and also the progression of the disease might be different according to genotype. And when we come to sometimes the difficult discussion you had during the um, expert panel discussion for the guideline, do we always have to start immediately, or are there situations where you would say, well, according to genotypes, this looks like a very slowly progressive disease and we can wait? What do you think? What? I I think we should collect uh, the data and interrogate, uh, you know, explore, interrogate each patient to identify uh, the stage of disease. Uh, although it it may not impact the, the response to therapy, and there is no conclusive data to show that interferon uh, works uh, uh, better in patients with uh, early disease versus more advanced fibrosis, and also for bolivertide, also for lonofarnib, that is an emerging therapy that is currently under evaluation. But that being said, I think it's important to, to understand where the patient is standing in, on the timeline in terms of disease progression, because this disease progresses very fast. And patients uh, should be treated rather early than late because they might develop complications. HCC might develop in patients that are not decompensated. And uh, also, uh, certain treatments like interferon may be limited in patients with more advanced disease, even if it's compensated. Patients with poor hypertension may flip, may flip and decompensate. Uh, uh, so we need to know where the patients are. Another uh, important point is that we have to uh, use it with non-invasive testing with a grain of, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, we don't have a okay, or, but I think we we already discussed it. But it's good to see that there's clearly an agreement. We do not need for the time being the genotype, right? But the stage also, perhaps in terms of the HCC risk, is still important. And also when it comes to what kind of treatment we should use, and I think this is what we really have to discuss now. And we had the situation that there was a conditional approval of bulivertide, an entry inhibitor for Delta, showing good responsive in terms of HDV, RNA, ALT improvement, but it was conditional. It was not defined for how long. And I think this created some issues for the guidelines. So please, Maurizia, if you could please explain what kind of discussion uh, did you have when, when discussing these things and where this really that people said, well, because we do not have this, we can't recommend a treatment or what kind of discussion was it? We started with discussion from the methodological point of view because we had only data from uh, abstract or oral presentation. And at that time, we didn't have any uh, trial in a full uh, article. So there was some issue on this point. Then we decided for HDV, we had to work also on this material because in any case, we have already data also on real life published. 
And so uh, the point was that uh, for Boulevardide, we didn't have data lo on long-term treatment, on efficacy and safety. And this, I think, was a major issue because indeed uh, for interferon, we have a lot of data and we know which are the uh, contraindication or the problem with this drug. Whereas for Boulevardide, the point was we have data at one year, two years in a very limited number of cases, but what about the more prolonged treatment? Because we know that currently we have to maintain the patient on treatment. So we had to discuss a lot on this point to be to agree on the fact that the benefit and the clinical benefit on the patient was more important than the who the stopping rule, the fertility rule, or the identification of specific virological criteria to identify the full responder from the partial responder. Yeah. So this conditional approval, of course, creates some issues related to the way we are normally working in terms of guideline, where we have firm evidence from phase three and so on. But Oha, do you think nevertheless it was a good approach from the medical agencies to go in this direction? We know it's also sometimes now for oncology, so for very severe um, diseases, rapid progressively, that they're based on phase two trials, that, well, the benefit for the patient outweighs all these issues we just discussed, that there are some, of course, uncertainties if you do not have the full data set. Well, I think that eventually it boils down to what is the risk-benefit ratio. And because it seems to be a, a pretty safe uh, a treatment, at least for, for the short run, and, uh, and the efficacy seems to be good uh, in one year and now in two years, I think it was the right decision because if you weigh that against not treating patients that progress very rapidly, you leave them without any treatment option. And these patients may develop complications uh, and, and even die. Uh, if you wait for three years or four years until we have the final results of the study. So I think for, for this moment in time, giving the, the options we have on the table, it was the right decision. Yeah, there were also patients on the Delphi panel included in the discussion, right, Mauricia? So what was the patient perspective? Were they also a bit skeptic about that the safety is not fully explored or were they very more progressive, let's say, we do want to have this? And they want to have a treatment. The problem for patients is they, when they are aware of the severity of the disease, they're really asking for treatment. And many of our patients have been already treated with interferon. So uh, not only they have advanced and progressive disease, but also they already were treated with the only available treatment approach uh, that was interferon. So they, were, uh, they, they want to have an additional possibility to be treated and eventually to have benefit on their disease. So they're very proactive for the treatment. And perhaps you can give us now a bit more insight about the drugs. And of course, mainly PEC interferon and the now fully approved but bulivertite was discussed. But I had the impression that, well, both drugs are in a way a bit equally in terms of whether you can use it or not. But it was this kind of reciprocal depending on fibrosis stage. So in the early stage, it was more like in favor of interferon, and in the later, more advanced stages, 
for the entry inhibitor bulimatide. So what was really the rationale to go towards this direction? And was there not a kind of an interferon fatigue or... The point was that indeed in the panel there was a lot of experts that use interferon. They were uh, the main author for many uh, landmark studies. So they, from this point, were uh, quite convinced that interferon had to remain as a major pillar of the treatment of a chronic hepatitis D patient. But uh, at the same time, it was evident that many of the patients we have in the clinical practice have a, a disease that cannot be treated with interferon or had been already treated with interferon. And in this sense, bulevertide was the option for patients with more advanced disease. We have also to consider that in the case of bulevertide, we have to give subcontaneous injection every day for a long-term treatment. And for this in this sense, I think patients with a more uh, progressive or advanced disease have a full rationale to be treated, whereas in patients with a less advanced disease or of a less active disease may attempt a curative treatment with interferon, trying to achieve eventually a functional cure also of HPV and eventually um, clear HPV. So I think there is a rationale to have in the early phase, uh, an attempt with a treatment that can be only the only treatment for the patients. And once you have already attempted this treatment or the patient has already an advanced disease, at this point, you have to control the disease, to control the infection. And in this sense, bulevertide is indeed... As a long-term treatment. Yeah. So, Ora, do you think this kind of recommendation was helpful and also a bit reflecting your way of thinking? Yeah, yeah, I think that the main uh, uh, the main uh, issue is whether we can still offer finite therapy to a subset of patients. And currently, uh, let's put aside lonofarnib that it's still under uh, um, in investigation uh, and uh, has not been approved yet. Uh, interferon is the only uh, therapy, while not approved, but the, in use in clinical practice, that offers uh, the option of finite therapy. And in young people with relatively mild disease and no contraindications uh, or, uh, for uh, interferon therapy, we, we don't want to deprive them of this option. Uh, if that fails, you can always switch to, to bulveratide. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's a good point. And in a way, I was surprised, but I um, nevertheless, I also liked the idea of this combination. And the combination of interferon and bulivertide, and especially for the early disease, perhaps in order to increase a finite curative approach. So where does it come from? Because it's fair to say that the evidence is not really high. Is it fair to say? Uh, well, I can say here the point was that the rationale from uh, uh, the, the combination, considering the mechanism of action of the drugs and the, the data already available, uh, the rationale is strong, but indeed, the, and for this reason, there was a part of, our, of us that was uh, uh, suggesting that this uh, should be the first line treatment approach in HD uh, hepatitis patients. But from the other point, the, the evidences, as was saying, are very few. We have, of course, interesting data from the phase two study, but the number of cases is so limited. And uh, how we can rely on this small uh, number of patients and the results, uh, many variables and biases are there, could be there at least. So the point was to give, uh, to leave this option, 
but to suggest, as it is written in the supporting test, mainly in possibly in clinical trials. So we have to use the combination, at least for the moment, in uh, under strict control because we really need to know how to combine and for how long the two drugs. Otherwise, there is, in my opinion, this is a personal opinion, is to make a mess. Because if, we, if you start to use interferon for more than 12 months, it becomes, in my opinion, risky and also heavy for the patients. And we don't know, indeed, whether this is... Yeah. Uh, no, that's, a, that's, that's a good point. And oh, sorry to interrupt you, but do you agree with the statement or is there anything you want to add? Otherwise, I would like <laughs> to... Yeah, please. I just want to add that beyond what uh, Maritza said, uh, we should uh, try and identify patients, subset of patients, uh, based on clinical, host, and uh, immunological uh, factors, virological factors that might uh, might pre pre uh, uh, we can identify as, as those that might benefit from a combination therapy. Because, like Maritza said, the evidence is not very strong to apply it across the board. Yeah. And of course, and you're one of the investigators of the interferon lambda. So do you feel interferon will stay with the with hepatitis delta? Uh, you know, we, we the holy grail is to reach a HDV cure. We are not quite there yet. Uh, um, uh, we don't have data that uh, treatment with bulveritide can be finite. Uh, and reach cure at the moment. Maybe this will change, but currently this is an entry inhibitor. Uh, and we probably will need additional drug and interferon and an immune modulator backbone uh, uh, might uh, um, be have an additive or synergistic effect. Now, Lambda uh, showed uh, it was very promising in phase two study, uh, showed uh, good efficacy and good tolerability. There was a safety signal um, of uh, hyperbilirubinemia in a subset of patients. And that was the, the basis for design of the phase three study that was uh, launched and recruited all patients, but unfortunately uh, currently was prematurely terminated because of uh, several cases of uh, decompensation. Now, while this is still being interrogated uh, to see whether this was a true toxicity of Lambda or just a poor patient selection, uh, going back to selecting patients for interferon, we need to to see whether we are uh, uh, selecting patients that have compensated disease, but uh, uh, portal hypertension, these may flip and decompensate. This might have been the case. So the jury isn't out yet, but uh, uh, if Lambda would be approved, it would be a good option in terms of long-term uh, therapy in combination with, with drug like Bolivertide. Yeah. Okay, so thank you so much. So I think we have the clear recommendation now from the guideline. If you go for interferon in early stage, not in the advanced, also because of the risk of decomposition, right? And that it's a 48-week treatment as a standard. So you should not extend because it's less clear. So now we're coming to the more complicated issue, and these are the endpoints for the long-term, or well, the undefined treatment duration for bulivertide. So what is the recommendation here? How you should use bulivertide? Is there any pre-specified stopping rule or when you can stop treatment because of a certain response? Let's say you have a undetectable levels for a long period of time of HDV RNA. So what is the recommendation here? How to monitor um, yeah, the patient, the viral infection on treatment? 
Yeah, is to monitor viremia at least every six months during treatment. But uh, for the moment, we don't have a specific recommendation according to the viremia kinetics uh, how to modulate the treatment. And what is uh, in some way driving the treatment is the clinical benefit, as Ima also stated. So point is that uh, uh, the recommendation is to treat the patient whether there is a clinical benefit and this is evaluated of course by uh, reduction and or, or normalization of ALT and also sign of improvement of the burden of liver disease for instance reduction in liver stiffness that is uh, in some way suggestive of improvement of necroinflammation and eventually also on thermal fibrosis and these are the data that uh, guide uh, and the criteria that guide the treatment and currently okay. yeah so it, it's clear that if you have a decline in hdv rna and there's this two lock decline as clinical well most likely associated with a clinical benefit and you have a decline on normalization of alt but what to do if you do not achieve these not endpoints but these yeah, response criteria. Well, the, the point is the data we have currently is that in terms of biochemical benefit, normalization of ALT, this is observed also in patients uh, with the decline of viremia less than two log. Usually having at least one log decline of HDV RNA is associated with the biochemical improvement. Yeah, and yeah well, sure, sure, Maria, yeah, but the is the guideline is really saying after one year, if yes. they are still high ALT, no significant improvement in HPV RNA, you should stop? Or is the recommendation to add interferon at this stage? Uh, okay, one possibility, as uh, we were suggesting, to consider a protocol, clinical protocol uh, in the, for the combination, this could be, of course, an option. But in my opinion, this cannot be uh, done at the single patient level in the clinical practice. I would suggest to have it done within a control a trial where you uh, can, at the end, put together data and analyze. Because otherwise, if you have also 20 cases, but without any um, uh, define a protocol. The risk is indeed to go into an adoptical description that, uh, that the uh, guideline goes for according to the discretion yeah. of the treating oh, physician. The, yeah, There's currently, no yes, because here. we don't have a final data on this. And for this reason, we will have, as soon as we will have data, of course, there will be a need to. Uh, add, add, have yeah. a, Are you happy with it, Ohad, or would you have been more, would have looked for more that you wanted more guidance here from the clinical practice guidelines in terms of when to stop or when to continue? Or do you think it's a wise decision to wait and see? Yeah, you know, in the lack of clear evidence, uh, I think this was a balanced uh, um, uh, recommendation. Uh, to leave it to the discretion of, of the uh, physician. And and again, uh, like Maritza said, I think if a patient fails, uh, every clinician that is managing HDV patients would not leave the, them solely on bolivertide. They would try to com combine it under a, a research protocol or compassionate treatment, uh, um, such as, you know, the, the, uh, the NAPS that is currently available as compassionate treatment, uh, and this should be this should be explored, but again under very controlled uh, uh, clinical settings, 
either clinical trial or compassionate use in in in, in the hands of a very well experienced uh, uh, clinician. Yeah, very good. I think we should come to the end, and I have perhaps two final questions to you. And first, perhaps to you, Art, because you were not, as I mentioned, part of the writing panel. Is there anything from yeah, the outside perspective you are missing by by this CPG, or do you really think it cover everything that helps you also in your daily practice? Uh, well, I think there are um, still gaps that uh, that are uh, not been uh, bridged you know covered because of the lack of of decisive uh, uh, evidence uh, again what is the long term clin clinical benefit of these treatments any treatment we have very scarce data even on interferon on long term uh, clinical outcomes we have to keep in mind that our goal is not to clear the virus our goal is to uh, prevent progression of disease and clearing the virus or suppressing viral is the mean to get to this goal and we don't have a lot of information about that so so we need to get more data about it. Also, uh, this is a snapshot in time. We now have results of the phase three uh, delivery study. Uh, these uh, treatments might change the landscape. We might have different uh, algorithms of treatment soon. And we need to issue, uh, uh, probably we'll need to issue a guidance uh, in uh, maybe less than a year uh, to, to incorporate this new data. No, that's great. And this is perhaps my final question to you, Maritia. We had it with Hep C, you know, that every year new treatments were on the market. And it could be a similar situation if you look how dynamic the field is. So when do you expect that we need an update in the guidelines? I think that, uh, as Rad was saying, within one year, probably, because we should have additional data from, from the phase through, uh, three Boulevard time. We have Lonafarnib data. And so I think, and probably approval of Lonafarnib. So once we have an additional drug, we'd absolutely need to include it either in the uh, treatment availability and possibility for the patient. And also when you have data on safety and efficacy on the already used drug, uh, we need to update our recommendation and possibly giving also more guidance how to manage at the single patient level the treatment. Yeah, no, that's an excellent uh, concluding remark. So I really would like to conclude this session. I thank you so much uh, for joining and the audience for listening, for watching the studio episode. I hope it was interesting and helpful for you to get also some background information and in what's going on in order really to, yeah, to commission and to write this guideline. I fully agree. I think it's a very nice document, uh, very helpful to read, a good guidance towards where the field is moving and also giving this level of flexibility we just discussed that it's also helpful for clinicians. So thank you again very much. I wish you a nice evening, a good day. See you soon. Thank you, Thomas. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.